You're listening to Chicago Writes, the podcast of the Chicago Writers Association. Welcome to the Chicago Writers Association podcast, a resource for writers. I'm your host, W.C. Turk, author and playwright. This podcast is designed for authors and readers alike, an author's resource and a showcase for some of the preeminent contemporary and independent authors from here at home in Chicago and around the world. Visit chicagorights.org. Now is the time to join Chicago Writers Association. It's open to writers and authors anywhere in the world. Unlock a wealth of writer and author resources, programs, and benefits for just $25 per year by visiting chicagorights.org or click on the link in the notes below. Chicago Writers Association membership, by the way, makes a great gift. And now, a few announcements from our CWA calendar. A reminder to register now for Let's Just Write, an Uncommon Writers Conference, March 25th and 26th, 2023 named one of the best conferences in the U.S. by Writer Magazine, two years in a row. Visit chicagorights.org. Announcing the schedule for our 2023 CWA Writers Educational Series. In these valuable seminars, learn about what it takes to publish a book, from writing your story to how to handle your fears of becoming a published author. Registration is now open, but space is limited, so act now to secure your place. Series sessions include, You Have an Idea for a Book, Now What? with Kristen Oakley and Lauren Shear, February 11th, 2023. Is your book idea fiction, nonfiction, or a specific genre? Which is the best genre path to take for your story? In addition to helping you discover the best path, we'll discover whether you're a plotter, panster, or both. This session gives you tips on how to deal with procrastination, set goals, conquer writer's block, and include exercises to inspire you, to write your book. Register now and visit chicagorights.org to read a blog on this topic. On April 15, 2023, Creating Unforgettable Characters with Kristen Oakley. What makes a character unforgettable? In this workshop, we'll examine some remarkable characters in literature and then run through a series of exercises to explore your protagonist's physical and psychological attributes, their strengths, weaknesses, including fatal flaw, desires, and overriding goal. Register now. And on June 10th, 2023, Story Structure and Editing with Tim Storm. What is the basic structure of your story, of any story, and how can an editor help you discover it? What does an editor do, and when do you need to hire one? Register today at chicagorights.org. On September 23, 2023, what makes a successful website for authors? With Celeste Anton of Dandelion Web Marketing. The importance of having an author website and how it can help you market your book. And on November 11, 2023, Fear of Success and How to Overcome It with Lori Shear. You've worked hard on your manuscript, short stories, poetry, and now it's time to share them with the world. Why do so many writers find themselves with so many questions and frozen at this point along their pathway to publication? In this session, we'll review what happens when you move your work out into the world, including discussions regarding your author platform, querying, being part of the publishing marketplace, and more. 
This is the workshop that will calm your fears about being a published author. Registration is open for each of these important and informative sessions, but space is limited. Each session is just $25 for members and $35 for non-members. Become a member today and unlock a wealth of writing resources. Don't forget to like Chicago Writers Association on Facebook and join our worldwide community of authors, writers, publishers, editors, and more. And finally, now would be the time to edit to perfection your submission for the upcoming CWA First Chapter Contest. Stay tuned for details about the 8th Annual First Chapter Contest coming in the summer of 2023. John Shiflett is an associate professor in the English and Creative Writing Department at Columbia College in Chicago and a storyteller. Sean received an MA in English with an emphasis in creative writing from Central State University in Oklahoma and a BA from Columbia College. He is the author of two critically acclaimed novels, his 2013 debut, Hidden Place, uh, which we're going to talk about, by the way, uh, and uh, the 2016 follow-up, Hey Liberal. He is currently working on a multicultural project, Oral Histories on Race in America, with the first three parts of the series currently running in New City Magazine here in Chicago, titled You Will Always Be Different. He is a Master Story Workshop teacher uh, and has conducted in-service teacher training in that methodology for decades. He taught creative writing in Prague in the Czech Republic, I guess as opposed to Prague in East Texas and uh, was a guest teacher and author at Bath Spa University in UK. His website is seanshiflett.com. And according to uh, to your website, you live with your wife, the equally brilliant Mrs. Shiflett, who we were just talking about the, the stunning painting that she picked up in, uh, in Vietnam a number of years ago behind you, um, <laughs> which nobody could see here, but, uh, but you know, it, it, flavor. Uh, and a couple of step cats and two English setters named Higgins and Brick. What I want to know, Sean, we all know the wife is an inspiration, uh, but how it do is. those animals inform your writing and creativity? <laughs> well, they're pretty high strung. I don't know if they inform my creativity, but they uh, they they keep me on my toes. Uh, the <laughs> two cats are like 16 years old. They're ragdoll cats. and they're Wow. Full of personality, and the, uh, the English setters are just pretty hyper. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, I, I, they actually bring out. I have to take care of something, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I have to. I have to make sure this, this, this. These living creatures are okay, and mm -hmm. sometimes that gets a little bit intense with trying to juggle everything, work, family. Um, um, but I, I also the love they give you is something that's pretty enriching when things mm -hmm. are going bad, it's unconditional and they just, you yeah. know, they just melt in you. And, and, you know, so I, I get a lot from that. Nice. Very nice. Very nice. That wasn't a trick question, by the way. I just, just was, okay. was very curious. I said, I well, don't know what I said. And sort of the reason I asked that is, uh, so David Liebert, uh, was, was on my, uh, was on my podcast, my playtime podcast. And, and I, I played a bit of it, 
on last month's, uh, which would have been January, the uh, the CWA Let's Just Write podcast. He's a very big animal guy. He was he was the road manager for Alice Cooper and Rare Earth and Parliament Funkadelic. But he my, my people musically. Yes, <laughs> yes. And so he wrote a memoir that is is sort of portraying that really decadent life uh as 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 rock and roll road manager as decadent as you would expect sex drugs and rock and roll right mm -hmm. and then he sort of redeems himself with with this ending about pets and how he's he's a champion for rescue animals and hmm. cats and dogs and, and all, all all that so it, i've got i've got three rescue cats maybe a fourth which just wandered over to the house just the other night and uh and a, and a rescue dog they're very centering forces uh as as a writer i can get lost in what i'm doing a project that i'm working on but they force me away and i mm. think those those moments at least for me are are kind of exhilarating and empowering and enlightening i as as i'm walking the dog uh or feeding the cats i tend to have thoughts or think through concepts or ideas that are still unformed when i'm sitting and looking at at, at a page full of words on a screen how does that sound that sounds great <laughs> i i cannot claim quite that high altruistic relationship i like with my pets i I love them to death, and they're they're sweet. But I, I call them my one percenter pets. They're like hoity-toity. I mean, they're they're, <laughs> they're oh my god, spoiled and beautiful, and they know it. Like they know <laughs> that they're like the two most beautiful cats in the world. Ragdolls are, are gorgeous, and English setters are. I mean, people stop yeah. in their cars and go, "Nice dogs." And wow. it would be unusual to walk our dogs uh, without some stranger saying something. So, <laughs> you know, I got to be careful because it gets into your own ego stroke. You're talking about your dogs, not you. <laughs> you know, so, uh, but they're, um, they're, they're pedigrees. And, uh, you know, I, I think if we do this, the, the, the pet thing again, next time we're going to go the, your way, we're going to go rescue because there's just so many animals out there that, yeah. that need help. Yeah, yeah, there are. The Book of the Year awards last night, they just get better and better, um, which was already mm -hmm. a really high bar. And and every year, uh, the Chicago Writers Association, which you're a member of, keeps raising that bar, man. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if we're raising the bar. It's the, uh, it's the community, the writing community that's raising yeah. the bar and yeah. the books they submit and... Uh, you know, uh, Latoya uh, won last night. Uh, uh, goes by Toya. Toya, uh, yeah. for, former uh, uh, student uh, at Columbia College, and you know, I was uh -huh. fortunate fortunate enough to see her in her progress. And I'd run into her when she was a student, going, "Oh, I have an agent, but they want me to do this or change the first person, <laughs> go to third person," and just you know how many trials she went through, and mm -hmm. then boom, suddenly. Uh, put it together and has this book out and she's teaching at Bennington now and getting uh, national uh, recognition. So, yeah. I mean, those, those kinds of stories. Yeah, you know, yeah. Those kind of stories. Chicago's always been rich. Uh, uh, whether it's Nelson Algren or uh, 
Yep. Um, uh, uh, you know, a lot, just a lot of, a lot of things that we're, mm-hmm. we're, we're a cultural center and we have our own sound oftentimes and yeah. it's important to the, yeah. to the scene. Uh, so Toya Wolf wrote last summer on state street. Have you read the book? I haven't read the whole thing. I've read the first chapter, but I'm, I, I actually admitted that to her last year. Oh, Sean. <laughs> so, so yeah, I will get to it. It's on my, it's on the top of my stack. Beautiful image in that where they're, uh, it's some, something uh, we give sometimes in uh, classes. I don't know where she got it of the the kids who are playing jump rope, double Dutch jump rope, okay. and from above they look like fish in their in their brightly uniform, uh, their bright clothes as they move around. And it's it's just that you know there's nothing worse than a bad metaphor, and there's nothing better than one that's oh, just right. Yeah, and Latoya really hit the mark on that. And she she nailed it. Um, and so we're we're going to have a, a conversation with her uh, in February for the for the March CWA podcast. But the, I, I'm a little bit better than halfway through the book. For for people who who want to who want to know, uh, I read every book by every author who comes on this podcast. Wow. So for for this this latest batch, I was a little heartbroken that I I had between the announcement and booking them to to the program was was about a week and a half. So I was and I'm working on uh, on my own book as well. So I was at a at a fever pitch of trying to consume these books, which is a little Mark Hudson's book reads very, very quickly because it's it's a history book and 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 there's not there's not a lot of subtext and 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 uh interweaving plots and and all that you you mm-hmm. don't need to come to a character you kind of can find them in in that situation and and, mm-hmm. and in a known situation but but for the authors like Christina Morocco her book is filled with nuance and subtext and and i i kept trying to consume that book as detailed as possible, as quickly as possible. But I think something gets lost in in not spending uh, a leisurely amount of time devouring a novel. It's sort of like eating fast food. Mm-hmm. The difference between eating fast food or or dining out, mm-hmm. and you know, there's a difference in quality of what you get what you get out of that. Yeah. So. I, th- I think it was um, Tony Morrison who said something to the effect that literature is not fast food, like slow down. Yes, yes, yes. yeah, precisely, yeah. precisely. Yeah. I love that. So we're we're going to talk about your uh, your project a bit, uh, and also the democratization of the written word, especially with the opening up of uh, of Amazon and the self publishing industry, which has mm-hmm. transformed the marketplace uh, literally in the last twenty or twenty five years. It's been that short of a time period. It's been a revolutionary mm-hmm. time period. But I wanted to start here as a creative writing instructor. I would love your thoughts about Chat GPT. And for for a lot of people who don't know, and a lot of people still don't, because this is a relatively new the 20, 2022. Chat GPT, the GPT stands for generative pre-trained transformer. For those who might not know, Chat GPT is a chatbot launched by OpenAI in November of 2022, like yesterday. 
open AI calls it a learning tool with the ability to write and debug computer programs, to compose music, teleplays, fairy tales, student essays, to answer test questions or questions on tests, to write poetry and song lyrics. Critics call it a cheating tool. And, uh, uh, let me just give give a little bit more depth here, and then we'll we'll. We'll get your your views here on it, Sean. Uh, in January 2023, the International Conference on Machine Learning banned any undocumented use of ChatGPT or other language models to generate any text in submitted papers. The Guardian questioned whether any content found on the internet after ChatGPT's release can be truly trusted and called for government regulation. And just uh, just this month, uh, after being sent a song written by ChatGPT in the style of Nick Cave, Nick Cave himself, the living Nick Cave, not the robot or the the AI Nick Cave, said the act of writing uh, a song is a blood and guts business that requires something of me to initiate the new and fresh ideas. It requires my humanness. He went on to say, with all the love and respect in the world, this song is bullshit a grotesque mockery of what it is to be human and well i don't like it much so critics it would seem are unequivocally against chat gpt and i'll uh, just add this one little one little piece here uh amar reshi and this is from uh business insider from uh, from december uh of 2022 uh, Amar Reshi was, re was reading a bedtime story to his friend's daughter when he decided he wanted to write his own. Reshi, a product designer, uh, design manager at a financial tech company based in San Francisco, told Insider he had little experience in illustration or creative writing, so he turned to AI tools. In December, he used OpenAI's new chatbot, ChatGPT, to write Alice and Sparkle, a story about a girl named Alice, who wants to learn about the world of tech and her robot friend Sparkle. Then he used Midjourney and an AI art generator to illustrate it. And Rushi has received a ton of, uh, of criticism and backlash from artists and writers alike. I just threw an awful lot at you. I, I'd love your knee-jerk reaction to that, man. Well, how good was it? Was it any good? Could he pass it off? Did anyone uh, say, "Oh, new talent here"? What? It's it's selling. I, I don't. I, I haven't seen how good it is, and mm -hmm. but I, I imagine it's readable. It's it's kids literature, so that can be fairly formulaic. I'm not sure, Bill. <laughs> this isn't my expertise. Yeah. Um, when I saw the piece that was on uh, the evening news, uh, NBC. Uh -huh. the, the professor was laughing. I mean, he he did catch him. He said they they yeah. they they knew too much. Uh, it didn't uh -huh. sound like them. There's this thing, you know, your voice is your voice. Usually, oh, yeah. a few times when someone and I could be wrong, you know, I, someone could have gotten something through by me and I didn't know it. But the few times where I caught him, it was just so obviously not their voice, not them. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I would think that the the uh, assessment of that songwriter you just mentioned yeah. is correct. You're gonna you're gonna suddenly see this change, and you would know what what was up. Now, could it get better than that? Yes. Am I, as a creative writing teacher, a policeman? Do you really want to subvert your 
first of all, I grade very easily anyways, just because <laughs> I think if you're, if you're doing the effort and you're making the you're writing the assignments, I don't know when you're going to connect to your material. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. and, and, and a lot of times it's just a waiting game. And my job is to try to give you the, the choices that I, I seem to through the weeds see that you, you want to do. And sometimes that choice isn't the one you've really picked. So how yeah. my, my, my talent is trying to get you over to different material. That's obviously to me and my mm -hmm. eye mm -hmm. as a, a creative published writer, more powerful. So there's a lot to it uh, other than just act to teaching other than just, you know, uh, being a policeman to see if they're going to cheat. I, I yeah. don't think yeah. I, I'm not real concerned about it. Okay. Uh, to be, okay. to be honest with you. I'm not, I don't think it's now things like research papers, different areas, that might be uh, uh, a different uh, a different take, but an yeah. art, when art, and I'm trying to get them to put their own voice on the page, and suddenly I get this thing that's more complete, or you know, it's using different words. I, I you know, I, I don't, I really don't know how good it is, mm -hmm. how well they, how well it's written. So I'm not, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna really make a judgment get, yet. Yeah, uh, I'll make a judgment. It's a stupid huh. thing to do. If you want to be a writer, it's just stupid. So, yeah, yeah. A, a lot of things are changing. My relationships with the students, you know, who just come through the pandemic. I there's a lot of times where they say things like, "I just can't come to class. I, I have mental yeah. issues, mental health issues, and things like that." So I've let go of a lot of the policeman type things of teaching and saying, "You're an adult. You're here." What do you want to get out of this? Mm -hmm. And if you don't really want to get out of that out of this, if you don't really want to have some measurable, meaningful uh, progress in what you're doing, then that's your business, really. You know, it, I, I'm not uh, because I got plenty of people here who do want yeah. to do that. And so I begin to concentrate on the positive that's happening in the classroom and not my sense of someone's trying to, you know, pull a fast one. I will call them on it, you know, I just, uh, if I, if I, if I know it, uh, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. it's, it's really a, a tough thing to learn as mm -hmm. a teacher mm -hmm. to concentrate on the positive that's happening and let the rest by concentrating on that. You're not ignoring uh, some of the weaker students or what they're doing. You're saying either come up to this level or forget it. You know, if this yeah. is the level yeah. you decide you join it or you don't. And usually they want to join it. You know, some some uh, some part of them wants 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 to be a better writer. They want to do well. They they're paying a lot of money for this this stuff. You know, so it, it sort of begs the question of what is a writer? Is the writer the idea that they have and their ability to execute on that idea, or is it simply the idea? I was speaking with an author last night who wrote a wonderful book about the, the 72 socks. Mm -hmm. um, and he's got, he's got a template formula for writing a, a franchise of, of similar books where he can just plug that. He can, he can plug in the content and it's, it, it, it's, it's very formulaic. Boom, 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 boom. We all, we all grew up learning the story arc. So, I, I'm I'm just wondering if if this isn't if if there isn't an aspect of this that's a little bit generational in accepting the story arc pyramid on on a piece of paper, but eschewing 
a computer generated template. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Probably for the type of book he's looking at, that's that's an oak. He's getting a template for plot and template for arc, but it's you know you say we all grew up learning it. I I have to say learning it and recognizing it and actually being able to do it yeah. are you know for me were two different things. I yeah. I, yeah. I really when I'm you could take both of my novels are fairly plotted, so I'm mm -hmm. told mm -hmm. I'm told they're plotted, but I had very little idea of what was going to happen, say, two or three chapters ahead of where I was in the writing. Mm -hmm. So plotted was a much more organic thing that was character driven by what the characters were doing and what mm -hmm. they were telling me would mm -hmm. happen next. And as I got further and further into the process, I get six chapters ahead. I know <laughs> 10 chapters. Oh, I can see the ending. Yeah. Uh, but the uh, but then you're just into the first draft. Yeah. So yeah. Um, things change even more. I, I would, I'm just not, you know, maybe I'm just an old fart. I'm not worried about these things. <laughs> so, right. You know, I don't, I don't really, um, I, I know the type of book I, you're talking about. I thought that was a really interesting book because I remember the time period of the White Sox that uh, that author was talking about. I wouldn't mm -hmm. consider what he's doing cheating because no, he still no, has, absolutely not. Yeah, you know, still has to write the prose. He still yeah. has to make it riveting. He still has yeah. to make me see things in my mind. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, he's just kind of uh, uh, borrowing tried and true structures mm -hmm. that, and I know famous authors, you know, where I said, oh, you got that by imitating Tom Jones, <laughs> or you got that by imitating All the King's Men by Robert Penn Warren when he's coming into town in the car. Yeah. It's all, you do this and you do that and you see this and you come so close to this this horse and buggy that you wipe the snot right off the, the horse's <laughs> nose and and you're, you're in your big limo. And I've seen people, you know, imitate that. That's that's just smart, you know, if it works, if it's that's something that works for them. Yeah, yeah. You know, you're I still, I, I'm a big fan of, of crafting crafting a story, crafting a page, crafting a paragraph by the rhythm of, of the word mm -hmm. and, and sort of sort of building that flow through a narrative. Yeah. And you still are required to do that. Now, chatbot GPT takes it to another level where you plug in the ideas and it generates the story. I just don't think that's going to fool too many people. Might, yeah. uh, maybe in some classes, but If you're really teaching and you've got a good, they'll have to use it all semester. Sometimes we write right in the classroom. It's, you know, it's one of those things where everyone's going to get like, oh, the, <laughs> it's, it's the end of mankind in art, you know? And I, I just don't, I just don't trust that. I think there'll be, I think there'll be things to protect us against that. And, and as the, uh, as the um, technology takes up uh, control, uh, so, so, so preventative measures will take, will take on too. All right, all right. I, I kind of blindsided you with with that. I, I thought about it last night, and since you're an associate professor of creative writing, uh, I mm -hmm. thought, uh, you know what, I'll, I'll I'll get your get your views here a little bit. Yeah. Um, well, Bill, so, talk talk to me about it in like a year. Maybe yes, just, yes. You know, it's sort of like fan fiction came out, and that's had a great yeah. effect. And they're just imitating and stealing things from other other people, and sometimes. You know, fan fiction, we all went, oh, God, fan fiction. It's just like there's no creativity there at all. But yep. actually, That's a great fan point. fiction is a good is a good way to learn plot, structure, you know, how, how the story moves. It's not yeah. a good way to come up with uh, your own story. 
people like Faulkner, they they imitated writers left and right. They just kept it quiet. <laughs> you know, that was considered good lesson to learn. So if I so so some fan fiction I look, I said, Yeah, I've seen Star Wars. You know, I know what's gonna happen in this scene, yeah. but they're actually writing their own imagery by imitating what happened next and things. And yeah. I said, That's not what we're doing in here. I can see the I can see some value to that, but you're gonna it's just as an exercise. You know, it's mm-hmm. not it's not anything that's going to get you where you need to go. All right. All right. Well, uh, we will come back to this uh Sorry, so. Bill. Am I striking no. out here? No, no. That was that was absolutely some some brilliant insights and a, a great place to to begin the discussion, which is going to be a much longer discussion. So we'll, we'll... can I say one other thing, Bill? Please, when, yeah. When computers first came out, I, and yeah. I've just seen this upheaval. This yeah. what are we going to do? When computers came out, people were saying, "Oh man, people are going to be writing novels over the weekend because <laughs> they don't have to retype all the time." Uh-huh. But you still have to put the time and effort into what you're doing. And AI isn't going to be able to, yeah. you know, get to that kind of fine art yet. Yeah, it's yeah. Maybe, maybe one day it will, but this first this first attempt at it, I doubt it. And and even even with all of the um the the help programs, uh, the grammar, the grammar help programs, uh, spell check and and what have you yeah that's exactly right is that cheating yeah that was like oh you should learn how to spell yeah but i i i still find there are a lot first of all there's a lot of things that it doesn't catch um Mm -hmm. and a lot of things that it misinterprets so that's true um, grammar is oftentimes wrong or it it goes against the voice of what you wanted that character to sound like or yeah it's not it's not precise not what it the the cadence and the creativity sometimes don't don't gel with the mm-hmm. uh, the mechanics of the uh, of the uh, of a of a correction program. Uh, I, I'll take program. it even a step further. Yeah. I remember professors of mine saying, "Never go to an electric typewriter because the manual is makes you go slower, and in being <laughs> yeah. slower, you make decisions that would have been gone too fast to have made, and it changes uh-huh. the whole story." So they were like, "It's like." <laughs> Yeah, I, would, I man, I was just glad there and, was an electric typewriter. I was glad there was a computer. I'm, I'm you know, and and I was, I would different. agree with that person until somebody came along and invented whiteout. <laughs> yeah. Right. So there, there's, there's always somebody with a fly in the, you know, the, the, the purity ointment, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good way to put it, Bill. Purity. <laughs> now that doesn't excuse having, you know, putting in all the different, you know, things and just having AI you know, write a story. I but, understand. Yeah, but but even with all of all of those 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 benefits to to writing, uh, and and I just finished a full edit of of a recent novel that I that I wrote, I still found a lot of typos, and then mm-hmm. I did this because I'm because I'm recording it for an audiobook as well. I read I, I read the entire piece and still found. Uh, typos and yeah. and mistakes and uh, mm-hmm. so the, the the computer hasn't hasn't helped us really no. that much it it, it it aids us but it doesn't it doesn't save us well uh, just if it makes you feel any better I, I find them in my published books I go yeah. I miss yeah. that. Uh, a humanizing so, factor, I would say, and I, yeah. I had that. I had that uh, that conversation with uh, Christine Morocco, uh, one of the authors from uh, from the the Book of the Year Awards last night, who is also a creative writing uh, instructor. She's found typos in her work. Sure. Uh, it's and 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 I'd say 
it's you know unless it's on every page it it's kind of a humanizing quality right sure sure yeah so so we have copy editors and even the copy editors miss things and it's uh you just yeah. pure, yeah. you're, if you're lucky enough to have more than one edition of your book, they just keep taking them out, taking them out. Sean Shiflett is currently working on a multicultural project, Oral Histories on Race in America. The first three parts of that series are currently running in New City Magazine here in Chicago. His website is seanshifflett.com. We'll post a link to the articles and to Sean's website in the notes below. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. Thank you. And thank you for reading all my writing. And, you know, it's, it's been a pleasure and an honor, you know, really to have you interview me. This has been a lot of fun. You're listening to the Chicago Writers Association podcast, a resource for writers. Visit chicagorights.org. Earlier this month, Ken Korber from the Center for Functional Learning and I began partnering on a children's book. Ken joined me in my Playtime podcast. Here's a bit of that conversation. Korber's The Musical Adventures of Grey series was inspired by his son, a cellist, who uh, about grace notes, those minor notes that are sometimes used to give the music more flair. The result is a series of stories that can be used by parents, clinicians, and educators as innovative sources to improve children's lives and enhance reading skills, health literacy, and music learning. Ken Korber is the founder of the Center for Functional Learning, a 501c3 organization whose purpose is bringing together music, reading, and health. You can find his books at Amazon uh, and one of my favorite sites, EckhartsPress.com, also at the Center for Functional Learning.com. And you can find Mr. Korber, at least for the next 40 minutes or so, right here. How you doing, Ken? Great. Good to be with you, Bill. Oh, it's wonderful to see you again. Uh, So I've been, been mulling over exactly where to start this conversation uh, and I thought I'd start because we're going to use this. Well, first of all, we're going to use this on my Playtime podcast. We're also going to use at least a, 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 a portion of this on the Chicago Writers Association Chicago Rights uh, podcast. So I, I, I guess it uh, it behooves us to begin with a little bit of uh, background. This is a this is a learnable moment for me, a teachable <laughs> moment for you, uh, and uh, and. I'd, I'd say for a lot of our our, our guests, a a very learnable moment. Uh, there's a lot of misconceptions about about children's literature and children's books, but uh, but I, I I found this really fascinating. Early children's literature consisted of spoken stories, songs, and poems, which they kind of do now. Uh, used to educate, instruct, and entertain children. The earliest of these books were educational books, books on conduct and simple ABCs, often decorated with animals, plants, and anthropomorphic letters, kind of like they are now. Uh, The English philosopher John Locke, we're really really going back into the uh, the history book here, brother. Uh, The English uh, philosopher John Locke developed his theory of the tabula rasa in his 1690, an essay concerning human understanding in Locke's philosophy, tabula rasa, was the theory that the human mind is at birth a blank state without rules for processing data and that data is added and rules for processing are formed solely by one's sensory experiences. A uh, 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 debatable, but uh, not completely off the mark concept. Locke himself em- emphasized the importance of, pres- of providing 
children with easy, pleasant books to develop their minds rather than using force to compel them. Something I think is is lost on, on a lot of people. He wrote, uh, children may be cozened into knowledge of the letters, be taught to read without perceiving it to be anything but a sport and play themselves into that which others are whipped for. He also suggested the picture, picture books uh, be created for children. Uh, <laughs> among these were the fables of, uh, of Aesop uh, and uh, the 1697 tales of Mother Goose. And uh, then I have, I have some other examples here I'm not going to get into. Uh, another influence on the shift of attitudes uh, came from Puritanism, which really surprised me, which stressed the importance of individual salvation. Puritans uh, were concerned with the spiritual welfare of their children, and there was a large growth in the publication of good, godly books aimed specifically at children. In Italy, Giovanni Francesco Straparola uh, released the uh, Fisidious Knights of Straparola. Rolls right off the tongue, doesn't it, Ken? Uh, in, the, <laughs> in the 1550s, called the first European storybook to contain fairy tales. Uh, it eventually had 75 separate stories and uh, and was written for uh, for largely an adult audience. In the 1740s, cluster, and I'm, I'm getting to the end here, uh, so we're not going to go on through the entire history of all this, but in the <laughs> 1740s, a cluster of London publishers began to introduce new books designed to instruct and delight young readers. Thomas Borman was one. Another was Mary Cooper, uh, whose uh, who's two-volume Tommy Thumb Pretty Songbook from 1744 is the first known nursery rhyme collection. Uh, but the most celebrated of these pioneers was John Newber Newberry, uh, whose first book for the entertainment of children was A Pretty Little Pocketbook from 1766. Much of children's literature, therefore, uh, is relatively new and was written in the last, uh, and then this really surprised me, in the last century and a half. If you go back to uh, John Newberry or or Mary Cooper, 200 years, 200 and, 220 years, 250 years, which is a relatively short amount of time in the overall history of literature. The Brothers Grimm came in uh, came in near the middle of the 19th century, uh, considering that uh, that adult literature uh, or human literature, the the Epic of Gilgamesh, uh, is about 4,500 years old. We're just kind of on the doorstep of of a of a vast learning curve on on how to engage our children. Um, their their thought their learning and imagination um which is kind of why i brought up i brought up that history do you do you sort of agree that we're we're still on a on a huge learning curve when it comes to uh to engaging children's minds i think so and and, and yeah. thank you for the education john Locke and i were good, <laughs> were good friends for many years ago there will be but, a quiz following the uh the show <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, absolutely. Engagement with kids, especially in, in the health domain, huge, uh -huh. a huge, huge, huge issue. Um, and that was sort of the basis for my to kind of, my my reason to go and pivot this way and, and sort of try to get creative and, and get something published. Because, I mean, uh -huh. not to not to go on too long about it, but cool. I always experienced the fact that a 10 minute office visit with a family was never long enough in a clinic setting to to talk to the adults 
and then expect the children to understand the same conversation that I was having with the adults yeah. in the room. And then they then they go home. So so the idea of a children's book for, from my perspective was how do I take that 10 minute encounter and extend it in a way that's familiar to kids. And and that's one way um, through a children's book, bedtime reading story, or in, in some cases, we, we throw it into the classroom setting for reading circle times with kids as a group. So yeah, that was the basic sort of driver for me to kind mm -hmm. of get involved with this from a more practical perspective. But I absolutely agree with you. Um, the engagement piece of it is huge. And that's why health literacy is an important thing. I think that the attitude of John Locke, of, of a child's mind being, being a clean, empty slate, is partly true but mostly wrong and yeah. and so what what you're talking about is engaging uh engaging children on multiple levels at, at the very least two levels maybe three levels if if that if that narrative is being read to them by a parent we all have multiple uh avenues for for learning we're we're some of us are visual learners. Some of us are are written learners, and some of us, you know. So, so we each need that that different engagement, which is why, as as a child in school, you listen to the teacher and you take notes. You read the book, you take notes. It's it's engaging all of those faculties in order to in order to help you you listen. Isn't that right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the great thing about children's books, which kind of makes them unique in, in the genre is the idea that you're you're putting in this visual reading comprehension thing seeing vocabulary seeing words and letters uh, all in the same story mm -hmm. so if you can then bring a little health message into that whole equation you're sort of teaching them without them really thinking that they're being taught anything right so yeah if grace if grace is telling them that they should be brushing their teeth that now you have an engagement through Grace as a character who's a friend of them through the stories, right? So I mean, it mm -hmm. becomes a very cool environment for them to work, and they're familiar with that environment because it's a picture. And I, that's why I thought that that Locke was was a little bit right, and and maybe a lot wrong, or or at least hadn't made that that deeper understanding of of children's intellectual capabilities and by by making it making it fun then then the, the kid comes to or the child comes to comes to that material voluntarily and their mind is open to it as opposed to being uh being cajoled or punished into uh in into reading it's one of the things that i i've uh i've always said about about art is that we we negate the child's intellectual curiosity and creative creative capabilities by teaching them for for a lifetime by teaching them that coloring or drawing or or some other creative enterprise is is a get out of my face kind of uh kind of activity here go color uh i can't right. deal with you now uh go draw <laughs> you know uh and and so so that I, I think that builds a culture in which art isn't and 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 by extension literature is not considered 
a serious endeavor. You, yeah, more of a more of a task a, as opposed to yeah, experience, yeah, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so this is where this began with you and I, <laughs> uh, because I, I've been I've been so I, I've been a fan from yours from the beginning. I've uh, been a believer from yours uh, of yours from the beginning, and and I so I, I keep I keep joking because uh, the uh, the the musical adventures of Grace, you know, deals with, with she's as we said a grace note is is those is those those notes that kind of give flavor and color um and texture to a to a musical piece um and so i i i've joked about a uh, uh a halloween piece based upon ghost notes right so so we we've kind of had we've kind of had this uh this little conversation going back between us so uh, over the years last may I had a uh, a health issue, a stroke, which essentially uh, which essentially damaged or killed a, a part of the brain involved in in the motor function on my uh, on my right side, which is my dominant side, by the way. I'm right-handed, so it was it was extra debilitating. I didn't know if I if I was going to if I was going to use my my hand or arm normally ever again um and and with the help of of my wife and friends and uh and, and a, a great community and and some great um physical therapists i've made a substantial recovery and i i don't think i mean i i notice little things but i don't think most people would would notice uh, and I've worked very hard at that. Would notice that I've had had a stroke. So, as, as part of as part of your series, you've also published books on COVID and vaccines, fire prevention. By the way, tell us a little bit about the the fire prevention project. That book is now in its second printing. Yes. So That's we awesome. we expanded we expanded the burn section uh -huh. based on feedback from from the readers that read the first story so it's an activity book not really a, a storybook per se but okay. what it does again engagement tool in a way that kids can understand what's important about the catastrophic results of getting burned yeah. at home or or elsewhere and then also fire prevention at home as well so so there was a we spoke with a bunch of for the research, we spoke with a bunch of fire departments locally, and and what you know, what do kids what do kids get mm -hmm. uh, as a as a resource and as an educational tool that you guys provide? And the only thing that came up was this once a year during burn prevention week in October or fire mm -hmm. prevention week in October, where they would visit schoolroom classrooms with you know with their firefighter gear on, and they would you know impress upon the kids the fact that. You know, smoke detectors are important at home and, you know, stay away from hot stoves in the kitchen. You know, those typical kinds of kinds of things. So we we took that idea and said, let's create a book about this. So it becomes something that's a little more iterative and a uh -huh. little more um, useful for the kids from a play mm -hmm. perspective. Right. So they mm -hmm. can do crossword puzzles and, you know, find the, the Dalmatian dog as, as a sort of uh, word search kind of a thing. In, all, in all different all different aspects of of learning by the way right all different aspects of learning and then the characters then are on the page grace and her friends so if they're familiar with grace and their and her friends 
there's a familiar face there that's next to the crossword puzzle or next to the word find or next to the coloring picture or next mm-hmm. to accounting exercise about fire extinguishers. and I mean, things like that. But it's also a tool that the parents then can use as a conversation piece at home to kind of drill, you know, drill down and, and help the kids understand why it's important, why daddy just put up a new fire alarm in the ceiling that beeps all the time. You know, what does that mean to the kid, right? So, mm-hmm. I mean, we, we just try to kind of um, encourage that sort of engagement and, and behavior and and hopefully something sticks, right? And, and then the kids then understand that they can become part of an escape plan for a family if the house is on fire or, or <laughs> you know, things like that in a way that they understand without, you know, hearing it from an adult level conversation or, or text. So dovetailing off that, you, uh, you thought it would be, it would be useful to have, to have a, to publish a book in which Grace helps her grandmother, either, right. either to prevent the stroke or to recognize the, the signs of a stroke or, uh, or to, to help her after. I've written a number of books, but I've never written a kid's book. I'm I'm on a huge learning curve here, uh, and I thought we could take um, take listeners along on our journey a, a little bit. If you're good with that, sure, yeah. All right, all right. Um, so you're a pro at this. First of all, what have you learned about writing and publishing kids' books? First of all, very different from a novel. I never yeah. really considered myself an author, so to speak. Uh-huh. I'm, a, I'm a children's book author. And I, and I maybe write a thousand words, not five or 10,000 or 20,000 words. Um, so so the, the key with children's books is to have a story that's visual for the kids in the text uh-huh. and then have a great illustrator as the partner to kind of get that, that message across visually to the kids and then engage them with other different tasks and exercises that they can use as playtime as they're, as they're going through this reading process. You know, I came across this this uh, this quote from uh, Australian author Mem Fox, who's written a number of books, Possum Magic and Koala Lou, Time for Bed, and she's written a sort of a how-to book, Reading Magic, Why Reading Aloud to Our Children Will Change Their Lives Forever, which uh, which sums up our, our conundrum here perfectly. Writing a picture book is like writing War and Peace and Haiku. <laughs> Got to get the right syllable count. <laughs> I, indeed, indeed. All right, let's. So, so we want to write a story about Grace and her grandmother. Let's let's start with with this this aspect. First, you have to know your market. What what publishers and agents recommend is that people do a Google search for for a title and a subject, uh, which I which I did by the way. There are only two children's books that talk about strokes uh right. what ha- and and probably probably the most prominent one is what happened a child's book about what happened and what to expect after mommy had a stroke our angle is to pre- prepare kids ahead of time though i i think but it, it it's true that that mothers are are at increased risk for some types of stroke um just simply because of the stress of pregnancy and childbirth but it's it's much more common as as we age, right? Right, correct. That that title and published book is is a great example because that's kind of the direction we want to go. Uh-huh. But we're going to put our own little flavor on it uh, yeah. and our own experience on it 
in a way that'll be a little bit different and a little bit unique uh, from from the point of view of the, of the reader who's, you know, the three to six year old that's going to be mm -hmm. picking it up. So the American Stroke Association uh, gives this acronym to help people identify a person or themselves, but a, a person who's who's having or may be having a stroke. And it's called FAST, uh, right. F for face, A for arms, S for speech, uh, and T for time. We don't want to terrify kids, uh, I'm thinking. <laughs> That's where prevention and taking the shock out of a loved one's health event is is key, right? Yeah. I mean, it's 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 important to, again, you know, not not do the um, the fear based kind of a thing for something that they don't understand. Mm -hmm. Number one. And number two, the issue in, in the real world is that kids are not really allowed to visit their family members in the intensive care unit. I mean, that's really not not useful as a way for patient management in the ICU. Yeah, um, yeah. It, it becomes it becomes an issue medically as well as, as psychosocially for the for the family of the kid and the patient. So so that's another angle that we're going to sort of take under our wing and, mm -hmm. and develop is it's not so much the only the relationship with mom and the child and mm -hmm. the pending disaster of the mother having the stroke and, and dealing with all those things. But it's even, you know, ex explaining to the child again in, in language that they understand what it's all about when mommy or grandma has to go to the hospital, you know, mm -hmm. in, in the ambulance with all those noisy sirens and whistles and, and lights that are, you know, in their driveway that they have never seen before, you know, those kinds of things. So, so yeah, we're, we're sensitive to those types of issues. Yeah, yeah. So, so this is this is the nine uh, the nine steps uh, on how to write a children's book. Uh, <laughs> one, choose a format. Two, know your target category. I'd say I'd say probably one and two are, are maybe interchangeable. Choose a title. Number three. Number four. Find a writing style. Number five. Incorporate important elements. Number six. Use solid characters. Uh, number seven, make the story engaging. Number eight, proofread and edit. And number nine, illustrate your book. You've already got uh, you've already got a very well established character in in Grace. So so number number six is already taken care of. So I, I'd say I'd say we're we're going to focus here on on incorporate uh, important elements. We'll break it down in in just a little bit. By the way, do you do you do ebooks? Or only only uh, paper or hardcover books. So the the fastest route to a product was a soft cover print based book. Okay. And and when I when I was contacted by Eckerd's Press to because they were interested in me as a little niche author yeah. for, for yeah. their for their stable of authors, um, that's the way we we sort of went right away. Okay. What's interesting is I then was searching for a voice of grace in the real world so kylie moore became grace's voice and that actually developed into a bunch of conversions of the paperback to audiobooks oh that's wonderful so now you can think about the audiobook idea and the paperback idea but certainly online then is an easy easy transformation as well from a technical point of view because they're they're just um you know, PDF files, essentially, mm -hmm. right, that, that get printed. But there's a whole bunch of different things that you can do from a, a format perspective 
when you get that original story done and published and 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 sort of out there in the commercial world or or out there in uh, in the audience uh, that's appropriate as a new set of characters and new stories. Uh, Oh, yeah. uh, so ebooks are there, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's uh, and and I'd say it's worth noting here for for people who are listening. Uh, the study at the University of Michigan found that story time with ebooks wasn't as effective as as an audio book or a paper hardcover book compared with like I said, like you said with a compared with a physical book. Uh, parents spend more time talking about the technology instead of the book content during ebook story time. So. Um, right. Kind of an important consideration there. Listen to my full conversation with Ken Korber from the Center for Functional Learning with more tips on writing for children on my Playtime podcast, linked in the notes below. And finally, part of my conversation with Michael S. Zimmerman about his shockingly true and powerful new memoir, Suburban Bigamy, Six Miles Between Truth and Deceit. So I wanted to begin with this. Moving backwards through the story a bit, as I said in the intro, this is this is a potent tale of recovery, and you write this. There is no single day you emerge from depression and think, ah, I'm cured, I've made it. Things just slowly start to get better, and one day you notice the sun is shining again, and it feels good like you used to bask in its warm glow. One day the air is just a little fresher and your steps a little lighter. Your work becomes a little easier and you start to be more productive. That's powerful, man, uh, and and very real. What was that a realization in real time as you were first confronted with all this, or or a summation looking back? I was really looking back on it. Uh-huh. I think it, this this really steamrolled me and, and my mother and my brother yeah. in such a way. Um, it was so shocking to unwind all these details about this life my father had lived completely unbeknownst to us. And you were hit with layers of of things that, that really steamrolled you from the sense that you were wrapping your, your mind around these Mm -hmm. facts you were, you were unraveling and they were new and they challenged everything you thought about the life you had lived with your family. And you went through that phase initially there was a little bit of denial, right? You're yeah. like, how could this happen? How did he do this? Yeah. And then over time, you wrap your brain around the facts and, and you accept them. Mm-hmm. You accept the fact that this did happen. And then you get into the emotional impact, how, how you feel and the impact it has and the realization that that relationship you have with your father, this guy that I really adored, is no longer going to be. It's not like he passed away suddenly and he's gone. He was still there, but yeah, everything I knew was severed. So, so, but before we get too far into sure. into, the, into the mechanics of the story, first of all, people would know your father if they grew up in Chicago, uh, if they drove a car, or they watched WGN TV. They they would know your dad's commercials. They would know your dad's name. They they uh, it's it's the same as your name uh, essentially. Absolutely. Um, no, definitely. And, and prior to being in the car business, he was an attorney in Chicago. Yeah. Uh, my mother used to, to say, gosh, you know, wherever your father and I went in Chicago, wherever it was, whatever we were doing, we always ran into somebody that he knew because uh-huh. you know, he had grown up there uh, with the exception of going to college at University of Illinois. He was back in the Chicago area at Northwestern Law School and then had lived his whole life there. So yeah. he, he knew a lot of people. 
a little bit a little bit iconic. So so give us a give us a brief synopsis uh, of the story. You know, we uncovered this this situation in which um, we found out he was living a double life. He had a, a whole other family unit living nearby in the Chicago suburbs, different school district, literally six and a half miles away wow. on the map. And um, it was really, you know, he, he had carried this on for over 40 years. He had managed to have all the logistics in place. Routines were in place. Mm -hmm. Everyone knew their cadence. Um, there was probably a little bit of luck and a lot of planning that enabled him to do this. And it was just by chance that it unraveled on him. He yeah. went into the hospital for a medical procedure, something we were unaware of at the time that he was having done. And he had some complications. And as a result of the complications, he needed to reach out to my mother to talk about those complications he had during mm -hmm. surgery. Um, had he gone through surgery cleanly without any any complications, he may have continued on for who knows how many more years. Uh, nevertheless, there were some questions my mother had about his story that uh -huh. he told her about his medical complications. And that raised her flag or radar and she yeah. called the hospital and uh it was in that phone call that with a nurse at the hospital as she was checking on him that she identified herself as norm zimmerman's wife and the nurse said well hey i just met you and my mother felt like gosh that doesn't make sense because my mother was in arizona and my father was in chicago uh -huh. so there's kind of an awkward interaction there my mother called me shortly after that to talk about it and I made the call to the hospital and dug into it a little bit, just casually saying, hey, I'm in Philadelphia. I'm interested in checking on my father. And the nurse was very willing to share details, which was interesting. Um, and she explained what he was in the hospital for, the procedure he had, the complications. And then I expressed uh, sincere concern about someone making sure they were checking on him. Yeah. And that opened the door for the nurse to share the details that really blew this open, which was, she said, your mother, your sister and her baby. And I just said, Oh, that's, that's not my mother, but that, thank you so much. I'm glad someone's checking on him. Mm -hmm. And from there, my mother and I said, all right, we've got something we need to dig into here. Something's going on. Uh, there's other people involved in his life. We jumped on the internet and started doing people searches. And there were some names that kept popping up associated with his name, in addition to our names, mm -hmm. that started to cause concern. And we kept seeing on different people search sites, the same names coming up. Uh, so we started searching on those names and you'd start to get some details about those individuals mm -hmm. and you'd find out where they were living. And so we started to see a little bit of a picture that there were a couple names that kept showing up mm -hmm. and they kept showing up for the same location, one of which was Glenview nearby Winnetka, where we lived. So literally, literally across the highway. Literally, right? Yeah. Side note about that. You know, back then in the 70s and 80s, prior to the, the internet and smartphones, we all were much more siloed in our communities. Uh, whereas today, what he did would be really hard to pull off yeah. because I feel like the lines between school districts and communities have been blurred a little more through social media and the internet and the way our, our our lives reach beyond our communities more so now than they did previously. I want to mention that this must have been really exhausting for him. And I, I'm going to hold going to hold your answer to that a, a little bit later on, because there's a significant aspect of the book that entails your empathy 
for everyone involved in this. And we'll, we'll talk about that in, in a bit. But uh, so I, I wanted to go go here. I also host a podcast for the Chicago Writers Association, and a lot of books come across my desk. Apart from researching a book on art history and reading volumes on right now on uh, on the Age of Discovery, the Reformation, and uh, the Northern Renaissance, I get probably two or three novels across my desk each week, or books each week. When I was first made, uh, made aware of your book, Suburban Bigamy, I thought it could go any number of ways, especially for a self-published author. I thought about my own experiences with this topic and the pain and confusion and anguish. You could have written a scree or this naked, heart-tearing, self-serving narrative. Instead, you bring us full circle through all that pain and all that that heartbreak, Michael, and betrayal to exactly what I think many of us look for in a memoir is a shared commiseration and perhaps a lesson or a signpost on getting over. Was that your intention? Absolutely. And I appreciate you bringing that up like that. Um, you know, there was a real journey here for me. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it spanned such a a broad number of years, you know, it's now nine years ago from the time we almost 10 at this point, from the time we uncovered the story about my father's life. And mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so there were so many different phases to it. And I think, you know, the story I would have told five, six, seven years ago would be different than the one I'm telling now, because yeah. I've, I've been able to go through all the different, I guess, phases of grief, the denial mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. the anger uh, and then, you know, the recovery and hitting bottom along the way. And then as I as I reached this place where I was really feeling more recovered, yeah. I had much greater perspective on what I had gone through. Uh, I didn't have a, an appreciation for what it was that I was in when I was going through it. Mm -hmm. I needed to come out of the other side to really see the whole picture. And I think that's kind of leads to what you were talking about um that i can see the whole picture more objectively yeah yeah and see all the different components to it what what we went through the interactions with the other family in the heated moments as well as looking at it objectively about what it may have meant for them so it's it's just been an enlightening experience in a lot of ways to kind of go through the whole thing and be able to look back at it it's not an easy um, journey to take so uh, you uh, and and I want to I want to lay out for for folks exactly what you went through you write it wasn't simply infidelity a lot of families have to deal with that type of betrayal no my father's deceit went far beyond sex through his selfish sociopathic behavior my father built all of our lives around a massive lie a lie about who we were and what we meant to him and you could have very easily left it there. I think a lot of people would understand if you left it there, but you really fill in all the blanks with this story. Well, thank you. I um, it, it took a lot of time to get there. Yeah, yeah. You know, I I, I feel like it was emotionally draining yeah, for sure. several years, and it took a lot of a lot of time, not only just time, but time thinking about it. Yeah. There were so many iterations of this story in my head. 
um, so many hours spent writing, capturing ideas and thoughts and notes, which really have ultimately just served as a way to process all the information. Mm -hmm. it, it was so challenging, not only just the facts, um, but then getting steamrolled by the emotions mm -hmm. and, and then being able to talk about it mm -hmm. in a way that tells a story somewhat objectively and, and shares with the reader, tries to share with the reader the full body of emotion yeah. and the journey. There's there's a level of vulnerability here uh, and, and a level of honesty, which is difficult for a lot of non-authors, but a lot of authors to to uh, attain. I just spoke with uh, one of the Chicago uh, Writers Association's Book of the Year winners uh, about his memoir of, of dealing with a, with a divorce. He expresses a, a really deep level of vulnerability that is that that's very very rare. So you you write in my and and another great power of this book is the journey the 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 self journey that you take us all on. Uh, and, and by extension, we're we're all we're, we all become part of that journey within our own realm of experience and our own well realm of, of hurt and betrayal. So so you write in my early 40s, I was on a, a self-destructive path, selfish indulgence and emotional avoidance. While I always maintained my professional responsibilities, my social life was a hedonistic blur, better fitted for a college student than a middle-aged man. I don't know where the path I was headed on would have led me, but I'm certain uh, it was nowhere good. That That's, that's first of all, very powerful, but extraordinarily naked as far as opening up to your audience. One of the big takeaways for me from this whole experience was not just pulling back the curtain on my father's life, yeah. but it really forced me to pull back the curtain on my life yeah, and yeah. do some analysis and reconciliation of where I'd been personally and then where I wanted to go. The, the situation with my father, it really unraveled all aspects of my life. It really broke me down. I hit rock bottom. Um, it, it left every aspect of my life impacted in some way. Uh, even I say I was keeping up my responsibilities professionally. I thought I was. I probably wasn't at my best, but I felt mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. I was. But I knew mm -hmm. in every other aspect of my life, it had had some kind of a remarkable impact. And so as I went further into this story, in my experience, I realized I had done a lot of things or lived in, in a similarly hedonistic way as my father had. So pulling back the curtain on his life and, and tearing me down in the process really forced me to evaluate myself as well and think about where I've been and how his influence on me had maybe mm -hmm. unknowingly to myself, unbeknownst to myself, had an impact, not because of his overt behavior, which I actually never saw, but the opposite, the lack of reinforcing the positive behaviors he should have been. And that full conversation is up at Playtime with W.C. Turk. And that'll do it for this episode of Chicago Writes, the podcast of the Chicago Writers Association. The Chicago Writers Association is a charitable 501c3 organization. Visit chicagorights.org. I'm your host, W.C. Turk. 
Our theme music is Midnight Ride, courtesy of Dino Olovchic. Find Dino's music on Spotify. Just like this podcast from the Chicago Writers Association, which is also available on Apple Music and at chicagorights.org. Visit our website, chicagorights.org. The Chicago Writers Association serves as a resource for inspiration and knowledge about the art, craft, and business of writing, and welcomes published and aspiring authors and short story writers from anywhere in the world. Visit chicagorights.org for details today. Music